Um, as most of you know, uh, I just, uh, Paul Richardson and I just returned back from a 10-day trip to Greece and then Scotland. We were in Greece to talk about opportunities to work with uh, refugees. As you may or may not know, 60,000 refugees have come into Greece uh, into a country that is basically financially bankrupt. And so you've got now about 30,000 remain in just living in tents, tent villages outside of Athens. It's, it's a mess. Um, so we went over there to look at some, some potential ministry opportunities for Westridge Church. And then we went to Scotland uh, to talk about some opportunities in church planting and connecting with some existing ministries that go on in Scotland. Several things uh, just stood out to me while I was in Europe. Um, first of all, I just got to tell you, just to see how far both of these countries have fall, fallen spiritually is just heartbreaking. If you know anything about Greece, uh, Greece is, is the, the, the church of Corinth, um, the, the church of Thessalonica. I mean, Paul's missionary journeys went through Greece. He spoke to, to the leaders in Athens. If you saw my video last week, I was standing on Mars Hill with the Acropolis in my background. It's where, right where Paul spoke to the, to the Athenian leaders. And then the next day I was in Corinth and stood at the very same spot where Paul uh, stood in front of the Bema Seat Judgment and uh, Gallio was, was, was judging him. And, uh, but Greece today... Uh, is t- out of a f- 11 million people, 25,000 only claim to be Christians. And you could actually be arrested uh, in Greece by proclaiming the name of Jesus on the streets. I mean, it's just that kind of environment. But desperately in need of the gospel, spiritually dark, but the Christians there are amazing. Scotland, on the other hand, if you know anything about uh, the history of Scotland, you know that back in the 1500s, a guy by the name of John Knox um, was uh, had a had a just his preaching, he's the founder of the Presbyterian Church, just his preaching and his zeal for Christ created a reformation to, to the point where at one point, 75% of Scotland was in church on a Sunday morning. Today, 1%. You say, what happened? There was a guy by the name of David Hume who was a philosopher who came along in the 1700s, and his teaching basically took Scotland down a spiritual path to the, to the point where, I mean, you can walk around Scotland today and just, if you see someone in church, it's just almost an oddity. But I want to tell you this, um, what you also see in both of those countries and throughout Europe, even though it is spiritually dead and postmodern, is you see Christians who desperately love Jesus. When they talk about Jesus, it's not just a little section of their life or they've compartmentalized. They are all in about Jesus. When they talk about it, it's, it's convicting because they're so passionate about their love for Jesus. But one of the other things that really stood out to me while I was in both of these countries is, it, is, that, is just how important it is today for us in this country with our kids. For some of you are grandparents. It's so important that your grandchildren know how to defend their faith. All right? Because you can rewind and go back to parts of all of the European countries and go, this was a point when Scotland was on fire for Christ, or Germany was on fire for Christ, or Greece was being impacted by the gospel. And today, today they are spiritually dead. And we're headed that way. And it's so important that we know how to defend our faith. So this morning, as we kick into this new series, and by the way, this brand new series, I just want to explain it to you for just a moment. It's going to be an 11-month series divided up into little mini-series. And this section is going to be called Why Jesus. The next one, we're going to be talking about the best sermon ever. Not because I'm preaching it, but because it's the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at some red-letter teaching from Jesus. All right? But it is so important that we know how to defend our faith, and we're going to be talking about that throughout this series. But this morning is going to feel a little bit like an apologetic um, sermon, 
you're going to feel like if you were ever in Bible college or you had a Bible class or you were ever in seminary, you're going to go, man, I feel like I'm back there this morning. Please make it more exciting than that was. Um, but you, some of you may be going, what is apologetics? Well, apologetics is the discipline of being able to defend your religious faith against objections and arguments. And today, we're going to take Jesus and we're going to put him out front and center, put him on trial, and we're going to ask the question, is Jesus truly the Son of God? Is he the Savior of the world, or, or his, is his life nothing more than a myth or a legend? Was Jesus really the Christ, or was he nothing more than just maybe a liar or, at the most, a crazy lunatic? Was the life of Jesus truly a fact, or was it fiction? Now, Here's where I want to start with that. I want to look just for a brief moment at the three major world religions. You know what they are. Uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. All right? All three of those religions will say that they believe in the existence of God. And so the world is saying, well, what's the big difference? They all, they all worship the same God. This is very important that you understand this, okay? Where the Christian worldview differs in belief about God centers around Jesus, It centers around how we view Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus was God. The other two religions do not believe that. Jews, Orthodox Jews, if you go to Israel right now, they believe maybe at best that Jesus was a good man, but he was not the Son of God. Matter of fact, if you ask them about the New Testament and they're honest with you, they will say that that either never happened or it was just kind of a legend or just some, you know, there was a guy. He was a good man, a little crazy. Islam, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not God. I want to take a moment and I want you to get your Bibles, and this is one of those moments I want to start hearing some pages turning, or I want to see some lights illuminate. I want to see your face light up, okay? For some of you who have moved into the uh, 20th century and you're using an iPhone or whatever it is that you're using, 21st century. Um, and we're going to look at one verse. One verse with 12 very powerful words. It's the beginning of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is how we're going to begin the series. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, there is so much power packed into just those 12 words. Mark calls Jesus the Christ. Christ in the Greek language means an anointed royal figure. It's another way of referring to Jesus as the Messiah, the one who would come to administer God's rule on earth and rescue the Israelites from their oppressors and their troubles. Mark claims that Jesus is not just a king, he is the king. And then Mark goes even further. And this is important because this is what got Jesus crucified. These words right here, his claims and the claims of his followers. He says, he is, he calls him not just Jesus Christ, but he calls him the son of God. This was a bold, audacious claim of outright divinity. Jesus is the fulfillment of of all of the biblical prophets' writings, and he is the one who will come and rule and renew the entire universe one day. So the question is this. How can we know for sure? How can we know for sure that Jesus is truly the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is actually the Son of God? Why aren't the Jews right? Why aren't the Muslims right? What makes Christianity so right? Because, Brian, honestly, and this is the, this is the, the facts, 25% of American adults believe that the Bible is a book of fables or legends or it's just history or it's a book of moral precepts made up by man rather than the Word of God. And just so you know, that number is growing, especially amongst younger adults. That number is growing. Well, what if those people are right? 
What if my son or my daughter gets into a secular college and they're overwhelmed by you know, teaching that goes against what I brought them up with and your kids are sitting there going, man, he's very convincing. I think he may be right, which happens to a lot of our students. What, about, what if Mark's claims about Jesus are just fact or fiction? Well, here's how you know. It's the test of falsifiability. You say, what are you talking about, Willis? All right. The older crowd, the, the first crowd's older, they laughed more. I just want you to know that. It goes back to what, the 70s, early 80s? Um, Christianity and the claim that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God all hinges on one thing. And that one thing makes Christianity uniquely testable because it makes it falsifiable. What does that mean? Think about this. No amount of proof of a positive observation can prove that something is true. But it only takes one observation to prove that something is false. Let me give you an example. I could say that, that all swans, right, birds, swans are white. But that, that doesn't make it true. What, what if every swan we ever see is white, but we know that no matter how many white swans we see, there might be some that we don't see of a different color. So we can never prove something like all swans are right to be true, even if we had a million white swans in front of us. But we could prove it to be false. You say, how would we do that? Well, you can falsify the claim by simply finding one swan that is not white. Matter of fact, in, in 1790, something happened in Europe that, that Europeans were enlightened by. For the first time in history, they laid their eyes on a black swan from Australia, which falsified the widely accepted idea that all swans are white. Now, no matter how much evidence we present for a religion, you can never prove it completely true. But only Christianity goes on record and says, okay, here's how you could prove it false. Christianity is the only world religion that provides its own falsifiability test, its own black swan test. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, the test is real simple. If someone can prove that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christianity is false. You can never completely prove Christianity is true not even with a million changed lives, not, not with thousands of visions and, and miracles and healings. But Paul says you can prove it false by doing one thing. Disprove the resurrection. The whole thing, says Paul, hangs on this, this single thread, right, this single notion, which if proved makes the whole thing completely collapse. So today, if we're going to prove that Jesus is truly the Son of God, if he's truly the Christ, if, if his life is fact or fiction, then we need to investigate the thread of the resurrection. Now, I want you, I want you to, what I want to do today is I want to take seven lines of evidence that prove that the resurrection actually happened, which shows that Jesus is our black swan, okay? The, the, and I'm going to get some points. I actually uh, gleaned some points from, a, from an apolog, apologist named Frank Turek. 
And it's easy to remember because all my points are going to begin with the letter E. And I really would like for you to take some notes. And you may have to go back online and listen to this again because it's, it's deep. I, and I get that, all right? Seven lines of evidence that prove that the resurrection is legit, all right? Seven lines of evidence that prove the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. The first one is this, early testimony, early testimony. Now, to start, let's just pretend for a moment that the Bible is not God's Word, and let's just examine the evidence, some evidence from some ancient manuscripts and what they tell us. Well, here's what we know about the New Testament for just a moment. It was written very close to the actual time that the events took place, which means there's less chance for legends to corrupt the text, and less corruption means that the text is actually more reliable. Now, I want to throw this chart up on the screen for just a moment, and I want to show you how some other ancient texts compare to the New Testament. Now, these numbers, I want to tell you what they are. First of all, you got your authors, Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, and then you got the New Testament writers. Then you have the date of their writing, okay? You can see Plato, 427 to 347, uh, Caesar, 100 to 44, 384, 322 for Aristotle. And then you got the New Testament, which was written between the, the years 50 to 100, okay? Now, this number is really important. This is the oldest copy we have in existence, 900 A.D., 900 A.D., 1100 A.D., 125 A.D. And you can see the years that exist between when it was written and the oldest copy, all right? And then you see the number of copies in existence during that time, all right? Now, here's what I want you to see. Down here in the New Testament, you have the New Testament written between the years 50 to 100. The oldest copy we have is 125 A.D., 25 years between those, 5,700 copies. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. This evidence here gives us a defense for two things that are very popular out in the world of higher learning these days. All right? Scholars will say, all right, that you don't know that, that you don't, you don't, they'll say something like this. Don't you know that the Bible has been translated so many times and it's been corrupted and changed? You cannot trust what it says. And then they may say this, don't you know that the books of the Bible were actually written in the 4th century by Catholic bishops that were wanting to control people? Now, first of all, people that actually study the Bible will tell you that there's absolutely no way that this book was written in the 4th century. The earliest copies of the New Testament is a fragment of the Gospel of John written and dated around 125 A.D., and since this copy is a copy of a copy, it pushes the actual date of writing back into the first century, which puts the other gospel accounts even closer, even earlier. Now, what about, what about this? Isn't this a problem for us, 5,700 copies? They don't, they don't all agree. But here's the deal. The vast number of them help scholars to basically weed out the copying errors so that the amount of the New Testament today that is in doubt compared to the original writing is, check this out, is less than 1%. So what does that mean? It means that the book that is in your hands this morning is what was originally written. And unlike other manuscript, uh, other ancient writings, it was written within a generation of the events and, how, and when they actually took place. Listen to the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He writes these words in 55 AD in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 5. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. All right? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. All right? Now, why is that important? Because Paul's saying, what I'm about to say to you predates me. Jesus rose from the dead. So the resurrection is not just some legend that all of a sudden just creeps into the Bible over time. No, no, no. It's in the writing from the very beginning. The second E is embarrassing. Scholars use this word as a long-standing tool to, to judge ancient scholarship. And it says this. If, it says that if a testimony is embarrassing to the author, it is presumed to be reli- re- reliable because the author would have no reason to ad- ad- event, uh, excuse me, invent an embarrassing account of himself. Now, let me give you a couple examples. In the Gospels, the, the disciples are portrayed as unbelieving, as full of doubt, as inspired by Satan at times, denying Jesus, and at times power hungry. Matter of fact, the star witnesses to the resurrection are the women who weren't even permitted to be witnesses in court. The gospels show them boldly marching out of the tomb on Sunday morning while the men, the disciples, are cowering behind locked doors. That's embarrassing to the disciples. Why tell that part of the story unless it's true? It's too embarrassing to be made up. The 30 eyewitnesses. Several times in the Bible we're told that the account is being written by someone who was there or someone who was directly consulted um, who was also there. Luke writes in his gospel account, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to comply a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. All right? So Luke puts himself into the story in the book of Acts. When he travels around with Paul and he uses pronouns like we and us, Luke, what does that mean? It means Luke was there as an eyewitness, not only to what was going on in the early church days, but he was there as an eyewitness to what was going on in Jesus' life. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the writings of the Apostle Paul, he talks about eyewitnesses, and then he puts him, himself into the story himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 6. It says, talking about Jesus, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Okay, not today, obviously they're dead. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, talking about himself, he said he appeared to me also. All right? So eyewitnesses. We have eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, but we also have people who knew eyewitnesses and recorded their words. The fourth thing is really important, environmental. This is the evidence that comes from details in the story confirmed by archaeology or geography. Now, let's go back to the testable idea of, of, of the New Testament for a moment. When the New Testament puts historical detail into the story, it basically sets itself up to be falsified. You say, what am I talking about? Well, for example, if you look at Luke's gospel, all right, and Luke was a doctor, he was very much into details, he relates the story of Jesus to a wider context of secular history over and over again. I want you to listen to the names of the politicians and the rulers and the famous people that Luke puts into his story. 
All right? He mentions the name Pontius Pilate. He mentions the name Herod the Great. He mentions the name Bernice or Sergius Paulus or Drusilla or, F- or Felix or Festus or Gamaliel. Now, what's going on here? Luke basically is asking for trouble if there are any historical accuracies in his record because each one gives the critic another opportunity to test the accuracy. But the whole point of the name dropping is to invite the testing. Because if one of those names, one of those events can be falsified, then the whole thing falls apart. You can't rely on any of it. So that, that's four things that help us to know that the Bible is an accurate source of historical material. If its contents are early, close to the events, giving us eyewitness testimony containing loads of embarrassing detail that no one would make up, but it also gets the environmental details right. But there's one more evidence that we need to look at that's outside of the New Testament, and that's the word excruciating. This is a testimony that comes from torture or the death of the authors. What, what, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, it's well documented in church history that the first disciples all died telling the world that Jesus rose from the dead. They suffered pain. They suffered torture. They suffered execution rather than recant their story of the resurrection. Now, the skeptic doesn't think that this helps at all. It doesn't help the reliability of the New Testament at all because they would say that loads of people have died for terrible causes when they thought they were right. And they'll use maybe 9-11 as an example. 9-11 is an example that skeptics like to use to show us that people are willing to die for lies. But to say that is to miss the argument. The 9-11 bombers died for a lie believing it was actually true. But how many people throughout history died willingly for a story or a cause that they actually knew was a lie? And for the disciples, if the, if the resurrection didn't actually happen, they chose, all 12 of them chose to die on account of a lie. Didn't happen. Then number six, extra biblical. This is really important. This is the evidence from writers and historians that corroborate the Bible story. Now, I'm going to read some of this. It's kind of King James writing, so stay with me. Let's see how well I can read this. Put that up there on the screen, okay? This is a guy by the name of, of Tactus who wrote about Nero, who was a Roman empire in the, in the years 112 AD, all right? He says, hence, to suppress the rumor... He falsely charged with the guilt, this is Nero, and punished with the most exquisitive uh, tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. Christus, Jesus Christ, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, of Judea, Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Okay? All right, let's look at another guy, Suetonius, who was the author of The Lives of Caesar, 120 A.D. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the uh, instigation of Christus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. Now, why is that important? Well, because that writing confirms exactly what Luke said in, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome around 49 A.D., which puts Christians in Rome within 15 years of Jesus' death. Jesus died, rose again, and and the disciples went and spread the gospel all over the world and ended up in Rome. Then there's another guy by the name of Pliny, okay? I don't know who you want to talk to those parents about. What do you name your kid? Pliny. All right. Um, Talking about questioning Christians brought to trial, he wrote this in 120 AD. They affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt 
or their heir was that they were in the habit, and these are the disciples, of meeting on a, come on, certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to God. It means the disciples went from worshiping on the Sabbath, Saturday to Sunday. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. All right? This corroborates the idea that Jesus claimed to be divine or something caused him to think he was God since the, his very early followers, they, they actually worshiped him. Now, probably the most important extra-biblical writing comes from a guy by the name of Josephus. You've probably heard his name before. He was a Jewish historian for Rome back in about 90 AD, and here's what he writes. Now, there was about, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and many of Greek origin. He was called Messiah. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Okay, that's a secular writer writing this. In, in the book, uh, Case for Christ, which was actually written by Lee Strobel, but which, by the way, is coming out as a movie in a couple months, a guy by the name of Dr. Edwin uh, Yamuchi summarizes what we can know about Christ, even if there were no New Testament extra-biblical sources. If, 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 if you did not have, let me, let me rephrase that, if you did not have the New Testament and all you had was extra-biblical sources, here's what you would know about Jesus. You would know that Jesus was a Jewish teacher, You would know that many people believe that he performed healings and exorcisms. You would know that some people believe that he was the Messiah. You would know that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. And despite his shameful death, his followers who believed that he was still alive spread throughout Rome. And all kinds of people from the cities and the countryside, men, women, slaves, and free, worshipped him as God after his death. Now all of that tells us that the New Testament is is at least a reliable source of historical document that gives us real dates about Jesus. But it doesn't tell us that it's the Word of God. It doesn't tell us it's the Word of God. That hangs on the last E. And that word is expected. So many things that Jesus did and said were expected by the century-old prophetic utterances of of the Jewish prophets. And we can't, we're not going to examine all of them today. But it's safe to say that Jesus fulfilled a perfect thumbprint of God, all right? A perfect thumbprint of God's long-expected Messiah, which moves the New Testament, which moves the Bible beyond reliable to now inspired, okay? Think about this for a moment. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophet's prophecies about the place of his birth, which was Bethlehem, the kind of death he would die, which is a crucifixion, the tribal and family ancestry that he would come from. You can see it in the book of Matthew. It talks about his life events over and over again, and also his death, burial, and resurrection. That evidence moves beyond, moves the Bible beyond reliable, and it moves us into the territory of revelation, which is, to, which is a reason to believe that what we're in possession of this morning, which is actually in our hands, is the very word of God. So when you examine the resurrection, which is the ultimate test of whether the story of Jesus is fact or fiction, which theory fits the facts? Here's what we hold to be true this morning. We hold to be true as Christians 
that Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried in a rich man's tomb, that his body was found missing from his tomb three days later, and that Jesus' disciples believed that he was raised from the dead and appeared to them alive after his crucifixion. Significant Jewish leaders believed he had raised from the dead and appeared to them alive after his crucifixion. We believe those things to be fact, not some made-up wives' tale. However, we know that people have come up with their own theories over the centuries. The, the, the theory that the resurrection is a legend or that the women went to the wrong tomb or that the disciples stole the body, that Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted from exhaustion. He was exhausted in the grave for three days and then finally came out. Or that Jesus was an alien. Some people believe that. But the fact is, none of that holds up. None of those theories hold up. There's only one theory that fits all the facts and because of the resurrection, you have the changed disciples who go from disbelieving doubters to passionate world changers. You have a changed day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. You have a written challenge of hundreds of still living eyewitnesses to confirm the early worship of Jesus as God in the flesh. You have the radical conversion of Jesus's, check this out, his disbelieving half-brother James who grew up in the same house who didn't believe in him till later on you have the account of the Apostle Paul who goes from being a Pharisee to being a hair-on-fire Christ follower. And you have the rapid spread and growth of the church, and all of that points to this truth, that the resurrection is a fact. Christianity says that you can falsify it easily enough. All you have to do to make the whole thing fall is cut down the string of the resurrection, and when you do that, the whole thing falls down. But it turns out that this string is made of some very sturdy stuff. Someone could could make the observation that dead men stay dead to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. But the fact is, one man did not stay dead. One man came up out of the grave. And because of that, you need to know that the ramifications are of enormous proportions. All of this, this means that Jesus' identity, his claim to be God, his claim to forgive sins, all of that is validated as true. This means also that Jesus put his stamp, when he put his stamp on the Old Testament and the New Testament, that these now carry weight as God's words. This means that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who will one day come back to earth to judge the living and the dead. This means that what you do with Jesus in your lifetime is the most important thing you will ever do. So what do you need to do this morning? The risen Christ says, believe on me. Put your faith and trust in me alone to, to save you from your sins. Let me be the one that comes into your life and not only makes things right between you and God and gives you abundant life here on earth, but is the one who carries you and, get, and forgives you of your sins to make things right between you and God. And he also says, follow me as a fully devoted follower. Don't half step. Don't, don't, don't just keep something in your back pocket as fire insurance and then do what you want, thinking one day you're going to do all you want and then when the, when the, when the trumpets blow, you won't be good. Listen, he says, no, 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 no. Follow me as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Not so I can burden you, but so I can free you to live the way that I created you to live. Listen, life is found in Jesus. Truth is found in Jesus. The investigation shows it to be true. Will you receive this by truth and by faith? Will you believe it with all your heart? Will you let Christ Jesus be your Savior this morning? For those of you who have already asked Jesus to be your Savior, will you let him be your Lord? Every day, will you invite him into your life 
into your dealings, your marriage, your relationships, your finances? Will you let him be Lord of your life? You know, sometimes you go on a trip and you think, I'm here for one thing, and you walk away going, yeah, maybe God had something else for me. As I walked around Greece, as I, as I walked around Scotland, I, I was just so burdened by how far these countries have fallen away from God. But I was inspired by the Christians who are there. There's no half-stepping. There's no, you know, I'm a Christian on Sunday, and, but not through the rest of the week. No, no, they're all in. When they talk about Jesus, I mean, it's convincing. It, 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 it permeates. I mean, but I'm also very aware when I'm in both of those countries that as far as they have fallen, what I gained was a lot of the younger adults have looked at this for a long time and going, this secular stuff, this worldly stuff, it's not answering the question. It's not, it's not filling my life. And they know how to defend their atheism, their agnosticism. They know how to defend all of it. Very convincing. What they want to know is truth. And here's the thing. We can show them all the truth in the world, all the apologetics, but I will tell you what makes the difference. The love of Christ in your life. What's going to bring, what's going to bring the people of our nation back to Christ is not you going out and arguing, screaming, yelling, protesting, doing all this and that. Jesus said in John, he said, the world will know you are my disciples if you what? Come on now. Love one another. What's the sign of a changed life? What's the sign that Jesus really lives in us, in our hearts? It's how we love one another. And it's time, Westridge, listen, just, all you got to do is go over to Europe and you can see where we're headed. And it's not, a, it's not a very long period of time from a spiritual awakening to a spiritual di- d- decline. From John Knox to David Hume, the philosopher, it's about a 200-year period. And today, 1% of Scotland is in church. One man. I want to call you out over the next 11 months, but I want to call you out today. Will you not only put your, for those of you who are, who are lost, will you put your faith and trust in Jesus and let him be your personal savior. And for those of you, the majority of you who have already made that decision, will you start living like a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Because it matters. It matters not only in here, but it matters out there. It matters to a nation who's looking, young people, young adults who are looking for answers, who are looking for truth. We could convince them all day of this truth, but what's really gonna make the difference is your life, your love. I want you to bow your head for a moment. You're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and maybe, hopefully, the facts of what I present here today is convincing, but also the Holy Spirit inside of you is right now. The Holy Spirit, which is not actually inside of you, but it's convicting you of your sin, drawing you to Jesus, saying, put your faith in this. Put your faith in Jesus. He's the answer. If that's where you are, pray with me right now. Say something like this. Lord, at this very moment, in the best way I know how, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior, to forgive me of my sins, to make things right between me and you. Lord, I am lost. I'm dead in my sins. The resurrection happened so that Jesus could conquer death, could offer me today new life, forgiveness of sins, and I put all of my faith in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross and the grave on the resurrection. I put all my faith in Jesus and what he's done to forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins. Lord, make things right between me and you.
Lord, I want eternal life, but Lord, I want the abundant life that John 10 promises me right now. You may not even know what you believe about all the other stuff about the Bible, but you're convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Christ, and today you ask him to be your Savior. For the rest of us who have already made that decision, I remember Andy Stanley saying long ago, he said this, if a man comes and predicts his death, predicts his how, many, how long he's going to be in the grave, and then predicts he's going to rise again, and then does that, I will follow that man with my whole life. Jesus has done it, and no one can prove it to be untrue. And the testimonies give, give weight to the fact that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he rose from the dead three days later. And if a man can do that, I'm willing to give my life to following him. Will you give your life to following Jesus? Not just in name, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Sunday, Sunday through Sunday, every moment. He's worth giving your life to. Father, help us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus in every sense of the word. Lord, not because we restrict ourselves or enslave ourselves or burden ourselves, but Lord, you have the best for us. Lord, you, you put us in this world for a purpose with meaning. And may we find out what that is to be truly devoted followers of Jesus Christ in this lifetime. And then to stand before you in the next and to hear well done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.